So when my three children, children were ready to be born, they all came quickly. Okay, now I don't know that the doctor that we told that was working with us when Alyssa was being born really believed us. Um, And so it was kind of comical, now not in the moment, but it was kind of comical watching them kind of run around at the very end to make sure everything was ready when Alyssa was to be born. Because again, when she was ready to be here, she came quickly. And so that'll be something that I always remember about her birth, as well as me leaving a high school lock-in to go and be part of that. Um... My oldest daughter, I again remember when she was born and some some specifics and things like that, but I remember after she was born, just how little she looked. I'd never been around that much, you know, of a newborn, and I remember the doctor asking if I wanted to be able to hold her, and like, I really didn't want to drop her, so I was like, I don't know, you know, just kind of thinking about that, but like, I remember that um, with my oldest daughter. My son was born on Mother's Day, and so I remember that then later, after he was in the nursery, the, the nurses brought him back, and there was a nice little card that said, Happy Mother's Day from Elijah, and his penmanship was amazing. But anyway, so like just remembering that aspect kind of about his birth. I was thinking back to a couple of my sisters, like I'm the oldest child in our family. And so I have a, a daughter, or not a daughter, I have a sister that's about a year younger than I am. And when she was born, everything seemed to be going okay, but then there were some sort of complications. And again, I don't know all the details to it, but the doctors told my parents that if she lived 72 hours, we'd be lucky. Well, uh, she's now like 40-something years, and uh, like everything's still okay. But like I, I remember just hearing those stories about her birth. And then I also have another sister that's two years younger than her, and when she was born, everything seemed to be going okay, but again, then some complications began happening, and the doctors said, if we have to life flight her to another hospital, she will probably have a 10 to 15% chance of living, and so she ended up having a lung collapse, and then they life flighted her from uh, Joplin to a, a hospital in Kansas City, and about that time, I remember like being with my grandparents who were in Kansas City during that time. Again, I didn't know all the details. But at some point, like one of the doctors kind of mentioned, well, let's maybe turn her over on her stomach instead of her back. And she began to get better. And so that's part of the story that I remember with her. And so because of those stories, I made sure to tell my sisters that I was the good child because I didn't provide any kind of difficulties for my parents in birth. Speaking of that, I want to tell you about everything that I remember from my birth, which is that. (laughs) Just to be honest, aren't you glad that you don't remember a whole lot from your birth? Um... And I may not, I may not remember anything from what my actual birth was, but I could tell you all about my rebirth. I could tell you the time that I was reborn. I could tell you the time that I was listening and understanding who Jesus was and what that meant for my life, both now and for eternity. And I remember the conversations with my family and with my kids minister. I remember that Father's Day going down into the baptistry with my father wearing the robe. The the water was pretty warm. It was at the eight o'clock service, which was nice because the nine and 1030 were more full. And so there were less people at the eight o'clock service. I remember going down and making my confession and being baptized. I remember coming up and hearing the congregation just sing the words that now I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me and not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. And I could tell you that that was the beginning of a new birth, of a new life that God had done inside of me. And so today we're going to read in our encounter, like as we're studying these different encounters with Jesus, someone's going to be challenged or taught about this idea of being born again. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. If you want to follow along on the app, you can do that. All the verses are there. Um, But John chapter 2 is where we're going to be in just a moment. 
And so a while ago, you even heard that we're talking about this idea of being with Jesus. And two weeks ago at the Christmas Eve service, we looked at how God has now come to be with us, okay? So now there's a new connection. And then last week, Sam was talking about Jesus when he was 12 years old and his parents had left, but they didn't realize that Jesus wasn't with them. And he, they came back to find him. We looked at what their faith was like and what it means to be faithful. Um, and in that, Jesus says, you know, didn't you know that I need to be at my father's house? I need to be with these people, so to speak. And so that's what we looked at. And then as we're following a timeline, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus from 12 to 30. Okay. There's not anything really written about him. And so when we get back into scripture from this 12 year old Jesus, now he has come and he is baptized by John the Baptist. He then is led by the spirit out into the desert. And while he's out there, he is tempted by Satan. We see when he comes back, he calls his first disciples who, when some of these people are listening, they're like, I got to go tell people. So they're telling their family, we now have seen the Messiah. And so they're bringing these people to begin following after Jesus. We have Jesus' first recorded miracle. And so that is when he turns water into wine. He's at this wedding. And back then, um, shame and honor was a much bigger deal than it is today. And so if you as a family, you know, putting on this wedding would have run out of wine, you would have been shamed and everyone would have looked down upon you. And so uh, Mary asks Jesus to step in. And so Jesus does, you know, making this wine for this family. And then after that, in the book of John, we see how Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses it or he clears it out. There's all these money changers that are not doing things the way that God had really established the temple to be. And so he cleans it out. And again, that will happen again later in his ministry. But John's the only one that records that this also happens at the beginning. And so that's kind of the timeline that then leads us up to where we are today. And I told you to go to chapter two because I want you to look at verse 23. Chapter two, verse 23 says this. It's talking about Jesus. It says, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed in his name. Okay, so first off, it talks about it's the Passover festival time frame. That's also when, as a 12-year-old, he was at the temple. But this is also kind of a timeline because, again, this is a celebration that Jewish people would come and celebrate every year. But three Passovers from now is when Jesus is going to be sacrificed on the cross. Like, that's the timeline that we're looking at. Also, in that verse, it said something. It talked about the signs that he was performing. Like, so far, we only have one recorded for us, this idea of water to wine. But it does show us that Jesus was probably <laughs> performing some other signs and miracles that were like turning some heads and causing people to go, hmm, who is this guy? And if you're to keep reading the next verse, it talks about how Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people yet. There's this idea of, okay, like, um, even if they're true believers, you and I know that people can be fickle. And so it's very early on in Jesus's ministry. So he's still telling who he is and such, but he's not giving the entire picture. So there's this aspect that people are beginning to believe in him. And I think even truly believing in him, but then that leads us up to our encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter three. And so even as I say that name Nicodemus, maybe you're like in this room, you're kind of like, I have never heard that name before. Like you don't know who he is. Maybe there's some um, small things that you know about him. Maybe you could tell me the entire story, everything that I'm going to preach, you know already, but I want to be able to look at this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. And what is it we can learn about being with Jesus? Okay. So we're going to start in chapter three, read verses one and two. John writes this for us. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 
Okay, so as we read this, Nicodemus, we learn he's a, he's a Pharisee. And again, a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about those 400 years of silence, we learned that that is basically a religious sect, a group of people who are very much wanting to do the things that God wanted them to do when all these other religions and governments were trying to pull them away. So, okay, he's one of these religious leaders, part of this group, but also part of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. 70 of these people that are now ruling over the Jewish people as much as the Roman government would allow them. So again, the Roman government had their hand over everything. But again, with uh, religious things, with things that are within our, our city, here is the way things need to go. And so he was part of that. What you need to understand is that Nicodemus had some clout. Like he was highly looked upon by other people. But even in this text, we see when he approaches Jesus, he knows that Jesus is a teacher and somehow he is from God. He says, there is no way that you could be performing these signs if you weren't from God. So he's trying to figure it out. Who exactly are you? And in fact, if you looked at the verse specifically, it says, we know. When Nicodemus comes and speaks, he says, we know. Maybe that means some of his own disciples have also been listening to Jesus, and they're like, okay, he is some kind of teacher. We don't know exactly know all the details, but we need to go figure it out. Or when he says, we know, maybe he's talking about some of the other Pharisees that have also been in on these conversations, and this temple cleansing just happened. You don't think that created a little bit of a stir? And so maybe there's some of these Pharisees that are kind of pro-Jesus as far as hmm, maybe he is being a prophet sent by God. And so they're trying to figure all this out. But I will tell you, what we can also see is that there's a good chance that for some reason, Nicodemus was a little bit, say, um, tentative or maybe afraid as he approached Jesus. And not necessarily in the answers, but he comes to Jesus at night. Now, some people would tell you that's simply recorded for us so we know what time of day it was. That's a possibility. Some people would tell you that I bet you Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus at night because Nicodemus is so busy during the day. Again, there's a chance of that, but his job was also to know the religious things that are going around and being able to hold to scripture. And so if someone is speaking this about God, that is his job to go and talk with him. And so I don't think he's putting that off till night. Some people would tell you that I think Jesus is just so busy that, you know what, we can't talk to him until evening because his days are so full. It is a possibility, but I would also tell you that Jesus' ministry has just begun. And so I don't think that he is busy from sunup to sundown, so to speak. Some people would tell you, when you look at rabbis back then, there are oftentimes that they would meet together at night and have discussions. And so maybe this is just one of those. But a lot of people would tell you that they feel that he comes to talk to Jesus at night because he likes the cover of darkness. That that's helpful. And it could be helpful for him, the idea of, I don't want people knowing what I'm trying to figure out. Or it could even be on a bigger level. Hey, here's this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, and he is going to talk to Jesus. And maybe that even begins to create a stir in people talking about things. So he's like, let me at least do this in the dark so I can kind of put some of these pieces together myself. We don't know, but John does say that he approaches him in the dark. And so if you've ever watched the, the Chosen series, I know some of you love it because it helps you kind of put a story behind just some of the words on the page. Some of you feel like The Chosen maybe takes too many liberties, and so you're not as big of a fan of that. But when you watch Nicodemus come to Jesus, you see a man trying to figure it out, like wanting to believe, but trying to connect all the, all the dots. And I will tell you that his conclusions when he comes to Jesus, they're valid. Like you're a teacher. You have to be from God somehow, because there's no way that you could be doing these signs without that. All of that is correct. It's just not quite far enough. But I would challenge you, before you are too harsh on Nicodemus, because maybe he came at night, maybe he was a little bit nervous, you realize he is the only Pharisee who genuinely comes up to Jesus wanting to know who he is. 
He's not being influenced by maybe all of this prejudice that maybe has been taught beforehand. He wants to know, who are you? And so that's his question as he talks with Jesus. And so this is Jesus's answer. Let's read verses three through eight. (coughs) Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so even as Nicodemus comes to ask who Jesus is, he doesn't just answer yet. He's actually kind of meeting the need of, okay, I know why you're here. And he begins to tell Nicodemus that everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God must be born again, must have this new birth, or literally this idea, this birth from above. And so again, Nicodemus is trying to figure it out. Well, how does that work? Because I can't go back to my mom. What does that mean? He says, no, no. It means this idea of being born of water and of spirit. And I will tell you, you can open up a whole bunch of commentaries on this verse right there. And there are three big categories that people fall into on what this means. And there are smart people that I know that believe all three of them. Some people tell you that it believes this idea of water is this idea of physical birth, the amniotic fluid. So you got to be physically born and then born of the spirit. And that is one viewpoint. Some people tell you all of this ties into the Holy Spirit because there are even verses in the Old Testament that you'll be refreshed with water. And so that means the Holy Spirit. So all of this water and spirit means the Holy Spirit. And then there are some people that fall into the camp that this means baptism. The idea of John's baptism, Jesus's baptism with the Holy Spirit. I will tell you that's the camp that I land in, that I think that that's what Jesus is talking about here of being born again. But here's what I want you to know before just thinking about all the specifics. What Jesus is telling him is, is there has to be a change. Like you have to be born again. And I imagine as Nicodemus hears those words, he probably thinks it's a little demeaning. Like for me? to be born again. Like I get it if there's a new convert who never knew about you and they get to choose you. And so I can see them, you know, needing to be born again or like maybe a child. Like I get that. Me, like I am one of Israel's teachers. It's almost like if we asked the president of the United States to take a middle school civics course. Now I will tell you with some of our presidents, that might not be a bad thing. You know, Hey, do you want to do this? But in this moment, Here's what Jesus is saying, that all of your accomplishments, like you're resigning those. The fact that those aren't the thing that's important anymore. Or even the fact that you have this Jewish name, you are from the Jewish background, that's not what's important anymore. This new birth is not about the family that you're born from, but it's more about the family that you're being born into. And in that whole text, I haven't really talked about it much, but he talks about the Spirit like the spirit of God coming over you. And he says, like, just like the wind, you can't control it. The Holy Spirit, he is going to go where he wants to go. And sometimes we talk about, man, do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? It's not so much that. It is the Holy Spirit who is leading you as much as we choose to listen. He is the one in charge of our lives, not us over him. But Jesus says, you must be born again to enter this kingdom of God. And I will tell you, as you do, it is a whole new life. Okay, so the conversation continues, though, in verses 9 through 15. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? 
Well, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And so again, here's Jesus. Hey, you are Israel's teacher and you're not getting the basic things here. Basic things that I'm teaching you, these earthly things. So how do you expect to grasp the heavenly things that I am trying to teach you? So here's a glimpse of who he is. He says, so the son of man, I'm the son of man when you're asking who I am. The son of man came and he is to be lifted up. And so that he might understand what that means, he references an instance from the Old Testament that we looked at a few weeks ago. We talked about the law that the Israelites, they were complaining. And so at that point, God began to send these snakes, these venomous snakes that would, be, would bite people and they would end up dying until the point that God told Moses, I want you to build this bronze serpent and I want you to put it up on a pole that then when someone is bitten, they might look up and they may be saved. And what Jesus says is, do you remember that? Just in the same way, the son of man must be lifted up that anyone who believes will look up to him and be saved. And so again, he's trying to connect the dots here so he understands some of these heavenly things, but that gets us to the verse that is probably the most quoted one out of the entire Bible in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That verse right there is the gospel message. That is the gospel message in one verse that God so much loved. And it says the world, but it's not meaning the created world. That word is for mankind. He loved mankind so much that he sent his gift. He sent his one and only son so that you and I might be saved. Our response, if you read that verse, is to believe. That's what God calls us to do is believe. Now, can I tell you something about the Greek word there that is translated believe or faith at different times? It's so much more than just a word. Like sometimes we talk about this idea of, hey, I think something, so I believe this. When this type of belief is being talked about, it means something that you are confident in, that you are convinced by, that you trust, that you completely surrender to, that you have a heartfelt obedience to. It's more than just, I kind of feel this way. Like, I believe this, and you can see this with my life. I am now with Jesus. That's what it means to believe. And J.W. McGarvey, he talks about this passage here. He says, man, we learn a lot about God's love here. You get to see the magnitude of it. The fact that God sends his only son to earth. You see the reach. The fact that this world is a sinful world, and he sent his son to it. You see its impartiality, the fact that God's love is for everyone. He doesn't start looking around and go, well, you don't deserve it because I know what you did last week, but you're good, you're good, you're okay, so I'll give you part of it. Like, that's not the way God did it. He sent his son so that everyone could receive him. You see about the benefits, it talks about eternal life, the idea that I can be with Jesus right now, but I can also be with him for eternity. But in this verse, you do see the limitations, And not that it's a limitation of God, but it's a limitation when God has put his love out there for everyone. It says, but everyone who believes. 
I have to choose to receive it to be able to experience the blessings that come from it. And in this verse, there's a very simple theology, but it's also a great truth. But it doesn't stop at the end of verse 16 when we often stop it. Go to verse 17 and 18. Because then John said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so again, you hear this idea of saving. Jesus did not come to condemn. You see, you and I, by our actions, we're already condemned. Like we have chosen our own thing. We have chosen to rebel against God. And so Jesus came to save us. He came to free us from that life of being shackled by sin. This message is not watered down. This question simply is, will you choose to believe or not believe? And so then we finish up with what John records from Jesus in verses 19 through 21. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, pl- it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God." And so he's talking again about this darkness. And if you were part of our candlelight service, yes, we held the candles high. But when we held them down, I said, do you feel what it's like to be in the darkness? That's again what this world is that Jesus came into. And I don't think it's a coincidence that John records Jesus' words here about darkness. Because Nicodemus has come to talk to Jesus at night. I think there's a moment of, do you want to know who I am? I am the light. And you get to choose whether you will walk in darkness or you'll get to walk with me. Now, this is the entire encounter that we have of Nicodemus. And the question is, does it change his life? Well, we don't know 100% for sure, but I can tell you two other scriptures that can maybe cause us to lean a certain way. You see, in John chapter 7, we come across Nicodemus again. And in this setting, the Sanhedrin is listening to, to the things that Jesus is teaching and he's saying and his signs. And they don't like that all these people are beginning to follow after him. So they tell their guards to go and bring Jesus back. Well, the guards, they go and they listen and they come back empty handed because they're just amazed by the things that Jesus is teaching. And so some of the members of the Sanhedrin began to get on the guards. And at that point in about verse 50, Nicodemus speaks up and he basically tells everyone that our law demands that everyone has a fair trial. Like he can see where this is going down. And he says, no, we need to make sure that everyone has a fair trial. Now, there's only one more sentence after that. Like he's questioned, well, are you a galleon or something like that? And that's the end of the text. So we don't know what all happens with that. But we at least see Nicodemus standing up a little bit here for Jesus. The other time that we see Nicodemus come into our story is in John chapter 19. When Jesus has died upon the cross and a man named Joseph from Arimathea comes. And if you read the text, it says, with the help of a man named Nicodemus, who visited Jesus at night, they take Jesus off the cross. And so again, that's all the details of the encounter. Does this change his life? I'm going to tend to say that I think it happens, but we don't know 100% for sure. But let me just kind of take a step back. Here's this conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus. But what does it teach us about being with Jesus? Like for us today, 2,000 years later, what are some principles that maybe we could take from this encounter? 
Here's the first thing I would, I would tell you. <clears throat> that being with Jesus should lead to belief. When you and I are with Jesus, it should cause us to believe in him. And I am going to challenge you, that's not just head knowledge. That's not just, yeah, I think he's probably the son of God. Yeah, I think he probably came to this earth. That means that I am believing that I am walking with him and there is a life change that it is going on in my life. And I'll tell you, some of you who are here, maybe even watching online, have had friends kind of telling you, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what he means for my life. And you're kind of investigating it right now. But you wouldn't consider yourself a person of faith yet. Or maybe you've been sitting in this service or a different church or even watching online again and again. Can I tell you, the more that you are there and you are listening to the words of Jesus and who he is, it should lead you to belief. Like Jesus doesn't want you just sitting on the sidelines going, yeah, I think I'll learn as much as I can. That's kind of cool. He wants you to walk with him. So the more that I am around Jesus, the more that I'm walking with him, it should cause me to believe. Here's what I would tell you also about being with Jesus, is that being with Jesus means being Holy Spirit-led. Like in our text, we talked about whoever wants to be saved, you must believe. But then there's this passage that again talks about, but if you're going to believe, it means being born again. And that means being filled with the spirit. In fact, Jesus, before he goes back up into heaven says, there will be a helper that will come when I leave and he will be there. And even in the book of Acts, you will have power when you receive the Holy Spirit on you. And so he will come. So being with Jesus, even though he's not present with us right now, means that the spirit is inside of me and I am not alone and I am guided by him. Him. So that means, do I choose to hear him? Do I choose to listen to him? Do I stop there or do I even choose to obey him? Because as I am following the Holy Spirit, he wants me to listen to him in all areas of my life. And I will tell you this, if you're walking with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is leading your life, your life will not be boring. It will not be boring if you are listening to the ways that God is leading you. Here's the third thing I would tell you about being with Jesus. That being with Jesus means walking in the light. Now, as a Christian, none of us are perfect. That might be news to some of you right now. But like, as a Christian, none of us are perfect. But it does mean that I'm living in such a way that I've got nothing to hide. I don't want to love the deeds of darkness I want to walk in the light. And I get it that the flesh pulls one way. Scripture talks about that. But equally it says, oh, but the spirit, he pulls back if we're allowing him to. And so you and I, if we're walking with Jesus, it means that we walk in the light. And that is a place of peace, not one of paranoia and always looking what's going to happen to me. It is a place of peace. Now, I wish when I use that word, I could tell you that that means your life is going to have no troubles. But that's not what peace means. But it does mean amongst all the troubles that life is going to throw at you, there is still a comfort that cannot be explained in any way except for this is what it means to walk with him, to walk in the light. Here's the fourth thing I would tell you about being with Jesus is that it doesn't matter how you come to Jesus. But what is important is that you come to Jesus. So as you approach Jesus, it does not matter what your background is. It does not matter what your past was. It does not matter what your family name is. 
It does not matter if you come with a whole bunch of knowledge that other people have taught you already, or if you come with a thousand questions. It doesn't matter if you feel like you have a lot to offer or you have nothing to give. It doesn't matter if you come by yourself or you come with lots of other people at the same time. It doesn't matter if you approach him confidently or maybe you're even a little bit nervous so you meet with him at night. The key fact is, is that Jesus wants you to be with him. He wants you to come. He wants you to experience that new life, that new birth, to be able to have a story to tell of what God has done. But as we read in John three sixteen, we all have the decision. Are we going to accept that? And will we walk with him? And so what we're going to do here is to kind of finish out our worship service this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to have you pray. And I'm going to encourage you to get in groups of two or three. If you have kids with you, pray with them. Maybe it's one of these four things that we talked about as far as what does it mean to be with Jesus. And you're talking about, Jesus, I really want to believe. Like, I don't want just to be head knowledge or help my areas of unbelief. God, help me to listen to the Holy Spirit. Maybe I don't even know what that is, so God, help me to understand that. Maybe your prayer has to do with, God, help me to walk in the light. And there's these areas of darkness that I don't want to rule my life anymore. So help me to walk in the light. Maybe it's that fourth area, and man, I've been listening for a long time, and I'm ready. I am ready to give my life to him because I understand I don't have to have it all together. He will be the one that puts me together. And I would encourage you that even if that's a prayer that you have at your seat with a group, man, go talk with someone at the prayer room as well because we want to come alongside of you with that. Here's what I will tell you. With all of these prayers, it's not about trying harder. It's not about just, oh, you know what? I got to walk in the light a little bit more, try to listen to the spirit more. What it is, is understanding that I'm already with Jesus. I'm already with Jesus and being with him, man, that makes me want to walk in the light. That makes me want to allow him to speak into me because we are already there. In fact, a very good verse that I think is comforting is in Ephesians 3.12. It says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So I don't know what it was like when you first approached Jesus, but as you're with him, there doesn't have to be any fear. I get that he is great and he is almighty, and so there is a reverence there. Man, he already knows everything about you. And so we can approach him with freedom and confidence. So my encouragement is to get into some small groups, pray over each other, pray over maybe what stuck out to you, and then we'll finish the service lifting it up to Jesus. So get into groups or pray by yourself. God, I thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son. God, I'm thankful for salvation. The yes means something for some, you know, day down the road, but man, it means things for right now too. And I am so grateful that you walk with us right now. We are never alone. And even as we grasp this idea of being with you, I pray that we understand that we don't have to earn your love. We simply get to respond to it. So help us this week just to grasp that even more, not just with our minds, but with our hearts and our lives. And may we continually walk in the light, listening to your spirit, believing in you. God, help us to make the most of every opportunity that you give to us this week. 
And until we meet again, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.